Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lawcast. Huge, it's autumn, and that means one thing for me. It's Halloween Havoc season. We're going back to my favorite pay-per-view of all time. This all, week, Halloween yeah. Havoc, 1993. All things are possible on All Hallows' Eve. Including the very worst beginning to a pay-per-view I've ever seen. We could do an entire podcast on the five-minute video that precedes the show. Uh, we will get to that in a minute. But <laughs> what's going on in WCW at this point? A whole lot of weird stuff, I would say. Um, yeah, we, we've previously covered Bill Watts being fired. Uh, that happened at the beginning of 1993. Uh, Eric Bischoff is now the executive producer. He's not running the company the way he would come to in later years, but he's gone from C-list announcer to one of the most powerful people in wrestling pretty much overnight. And that will never not be a weird promotion for me. At the same time, it, it makes so much sense the way that he explains that it happened and the, the reasons why, because so many people have fucked this up in a row. And like, literally this is a giant corporation. This isn't just like a normal wrestling promotion. They badly just want some level of stability and corporate thinking that they're literally just like the first guy who walks in who even understands corporate lingo. They're just like, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Fuck all these other guys. Bischoff has explained that really, more than anything else, his mandate was to make WCW stop embarrassing Turner. Because yeah. Bill Watts cannot explain enough how much of a disaster Bill Watts was. Like... There are so many stories from the Bill Watts period that like are so difficult to believe when you understand that he worked for one of the biggest television corporations of all time. That he would bring a gun to the office, that he took a piss out his window. He took a piss out of his window at Turner Broadcasting. <laughs> like that's the kind of thing I don't feel like you could get away with even in like the old wrestling days. No. Like, t the tower with where CNN studios are in Atlanta, and you're pissing out the window. Fucking Jane Fonda has to dodge your piss on the way into the building. <laughs> it's amazing this company didn't get shut down after this Bill Watts shit. Like, there's it, no good reason they did it. Like, it's <clears throat> exclusively Ted Turner was a wrestling fan is the answer. Yeah, and, and I think at least partially is because Ted himself was not super involved in WCW at all. Like, he wanted it around because he wanted it around. So when people would come to him and be like, we should close this down, he'd be like, shut the fuck up. That's my personal thing. But he didn't – I don't think Ted really understood what a shambles this whole situation was. Yeah, I think was. that's what saved it is, yeah, he wasn't close enough to see just how much of a disaster and an embarrassment to his company WCW was. And, like, literally everybody within the company was like, please, please let us kill this dead. It is humiliating to be associated with these psychopaths. <laughs> I mean – even when WCW was successful in the late 90s, everyone at Turner still hated it. So you can only imagine how they felt like during this early 90s garbage period. Well, let's also remember that this is somewhat of a renaissance for TBS. Like TBS was big during the 80s and wrestling was a big part of this. But this is during the big explosion of the Braves. 
And like TBS yeah. was the only place where you could really watch the Atlanta Braves play. They were like the most popular baseball team in the country. TBS started to get actual programming on it. It became a channel people actually watched and cable subscriptions grew and grew. And WCW at this point is just a pointless little nothing. It looks like shit. It's hardly filmable at all. Nobody's in the stands. It, it's... It's, I can't express to you what a terrible television product this was to have on as your company is growing exponentially. It's weird. Yeah, they're dragging bums off the streets of Atlanta up to fill seats at their TV shows. Like, they've got these drunks falling asleep on camera during the shows at center stage. Their house shows are drawing like 200 people. Like, I cannot continue to explain just how bad of shape this company is in at this point. And yet, despite that, there are a number of people within the company that genuinely think they're doing the right thing. And that's another big reason why Eric Bischoff gets put in charge is because a lot of like the people who interview for the job, like Jim Ross, and Tony Schiavone, and people like that are just basically like, yeah, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. We'll just do a better job of it. Like, we just won't fuck up so badly. Like, a massive change was necessary because this whole system... It's just an indictment of the wrestling industry. Yeah. I Somehow, is Eric Bischoff underrated? I yes. He, he just is. Like People focus on the bad rather than the good. Eric Bischoff from 1994 to 1997 was a genius. He turned around something that was unturnaroundable, made all sorts of incredibly savvy, interesting, and forward-thinking business ideas. And then the second he got successful, he was completely incapable of maintaining that success. So, like, he's both underrated and complete. it's completely fair, all the criticism we give him. But, like, 1998 non-Bischoff is a totally different thing. Where he's turning it around and creating it, it's like uh, Sam Hinkie with the 76ers, right? Yeah. Like somebody had to tear down that shithole in order to turn it all around. It was not necessarily conventional the way that it was done, but the results came. But when it became a successful team, you have to get somebody in who knows how to manage a successful team. You can't leave the rebuild guy in. You know what I mean? So what else is going on in WCW? Uh, they've got Ric Flair back. Uh, he left the WWF in January. Um, you know, was unhappy with the fact that he had fallen out of the main event in the WWF and there didn't seem to be any plans for him to get back into the main event as they were going into a youth movement. So he comes back to WCW in the spring. Uh, he's not allowed to wrestle for a little while. So they have him doing like a talk show on their TV just to you know, give him something to do until he's allowed to wrestle. His non-compete expires in the summer. Uh, he won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in the summer from Barry Windham, which, um, you know, we'll get into the whole WCW-NWA relationship in a second here. But Bill Watts had brought the NWA back to WCW after they had uh, split in 1991. Um, thoughts on that? I don't think there was any equity in the NWA brand at this point. I don't think it was really necessary. No, it makes total sense why they split, and it makes total sense why every company in the same position has done this same thing. ECW, when given hold of the NWA brand, used it for attention and then shat on it. TNA, when given the NWA brand, it used it for attention and then shat on it. Like, that happens 
time and time again because the NWA is a means to an end for promotions at this point. Not even at this point. I mean, at that point. Where, like, it was just a way of being like, oh, hey, we have the credibility of the belt that goes back 55 years. But actually, we're way bigger than this belt now, so we don't need you anymore. So Flair lost the NWA title to Rick Rude at Fall Brawl. Tonight, Flair would get his rematch to try to win back that title. Except not really, because the NWA and WCW split because the NWA was mad that Bischoff put the title on Rude uh, without consulting them, which very much on, feels like a power play on Bischoff's part. I think he was trying to provoke this crisis. Completely agree. Yeah. Like, so it's no longer the NWA World Heavyweight title. It's something. They're not quite sure what it is. It's the big gold belt. They literally call it that at points. The big gold belt. The big gold belt. That That is the prestigious prize of this company. It is a beautiful title belt, and it's really a shame that it's not the real WCW title for the next couple of years. But when they unify the titles, that's the belt that survives, because it has to. It, it must be said that the big gold belt is, would you say it's the best title belt ever? It's definitely my favorite. Yeah, it, it's it, it is synonymous with title belts to me. Like that, that's what a title belt looks like in my head. Yeah, it's by this point they have fumbled together the explanation that this belt has been recognized by WCW International as a World Heavyweight Championship, and it will eventually be referred to as the WCW International. World Heavyweight Championship. WCW International, of course, being a fictitious organization. Yeah, but just to be clear, Tony Schiavone says on the show, like, we didn't think this was a real world title, but WCW International Committee says that it is, so I guess that it is. As in, WCW doesn't want to recognize this belt, but a fictional company, a fictional conglomerate from around the world is forcing them to recognize it. Seems legit. I mean, like, it, it implies that there are other WCWs all around the world, right? I kind of like that idea of your, like, fake global international wrestling body. But at the same time, people watch wrestling for an escape from their everyday lives. So I really don't like when wrestling storylines become this kind of bureaucratic and process-oriented. You mean like all WWE for the oh, last 20 yeah. years? <laughs> yeah, we got this about 20 years ago, and they can't quit it. I can't wait until there's a WWE India and a WWE Japan and a WWE UK, and then like all the belts are decided by a shadow committee. Um, so the main event of this show is going to be Cactus Jack against Vader in the second annual Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal match. This time they'll come up with a better stipulation than the coal miner's glove. Let me just ask, has any stipulate has any match that went as poorly as that one did ever gotten a follow-up like this? Like, how did that gimmick not die a death? It's a good question. You'd think you would have gone away from it. This is a much better sequel, and then I don't believe they ever did this again. Like, did they do another Chamber of Horrors after no. the horrible one? There was never a second Kennel from Hell match. Like, it's that level. <laughs> yep. They brought it back, and it's 
much better this time. And uh, let's give a shout out to uh, MLW, who are also running a spin the wheel, make the deal show in October. It's too bad the, the, the WWE owns the Halloween Havoc trademark, or you know that know that MLW would be doing that. Oh God, yes! Bring it all back, man. WWE, let let your people go. <laughs> Just bring back WCW. Yes. Fucking Friday night WCW. I want it. So this feud started back in the spring. Uh, Cactus and Vader wrestled on WCW Saturday night. Uh, Cactus won that match by countout. Vader beat the hell out of him. They had a rematch a couple weeks later. That match ended when Vader powerbombed Cactus Jack on a concrete floor. Like, real concrete. Um, as an aside, have you seen the horrific gif of that indie wrestler uh, trying to do a buckle bomb? and accidentally throwing his opponent over the top rope onto a concrete floor. I have, yes. Yeah, one of the worst things I've ever seen, but this time it was intentional. This was the plan. McFoley took a powerbomb on concrete. Where do you rank that as far as the craziest things McFoley ever did? Like, we were talking before we started recording about, like, things that we would rather have done to us than take a Vader powerbomb on concrete. And honestly... Like, it, it's easy to say, like, yeah, yeah, I'd take it, whatever. But, like, no. it, if if I had to go, like, in between his thighs and he boosted me up, I honestly think I'd rather jump off the cell. I yeah. really do. It's tough. Like, concrete. Think about because at least I would be is. controlling what happened to me, and I wouldn't be trusting Vader with my safety. Think of how much it hurts just to, like, slip and fall, like, on a driveway or a concrete floor. Like, let's be clear. Vader has paralyzed people yeah. in the ring with his powerbomb. Yeah, this messed Foley up pretty bad. Uh, he had a concussion and some other problems coming out of this. Um, also, let's be clear. If your thought was, well, he'll protect him, he did not. No. He fucking sent it. This is Vader. You would never think Vader was ever <laughs> going to protect you. Vader's punches... Or I wouldn't let Vader punch me because I would think he would kill me. Like, we'll get to something later, but, like, Mick Foley's eventually going to try to retire by assuming that Vader will attempt to kill him. <laughs> Which was not a bad assumption. No! It's the one thing you can count on in this crazy world. Vader will stiff me. So Mick Foley takes this horrific powerbomb on concrete with... I don't know if with the understand, but obviously this is going to build to a big match. And I'm sure he's feeling like this is his big break. This is going to be the match of his career. Right. What ends up happening instead is they do the infamous lost in Cleveland storyline where Mick Foley suffers from amnesia and is homeless on the streets of Cleveland but instead of this being portrayed as like a tragedy, it's kind of just all for laughs. That's the craziest thing. It's like they're doing, they're so caught up in doing these like mini movies. And like for some reason, like all those mini movies have to have tons of comedy in them. And like this gets caught up in that. And this is, we're talking about one of the most deadly serious feuds in wrestling history. One where Mick Foley loses an ear. He gets powerbombed on concrete. 
He takes horrific punishment from the most dangerous and devastating wrestler who's ever performed in, in a ring. And But like wedged in the middle, and the reason we don't really remember it that way is just some comedy bullshit. Yeah. It, I, Mick Foley is crazy. I have a hard time believing he would have agreed to do that spot, although it was probably his idea. If he had known what they were going to end up doing with it. I'm thinking he wouldn't have. Although, believe it or not, a year after this, he takes another power bomb on concrete from Vader, and it leads to absolutely nothing. Yeah, see, the, the thing that you can count on, when you read Mick Foley's books, he works himself into thinking things are going to happen. <laughs> like, it literally seems like he's just like, well, if I take this power bomb, they'll have to give me this push. No, they they'll don't. have to do this, and they don't. And he no, feels betrayed matter. when they don't. You played yourself. Yes. He plays himself again and again. Maybe this time Vince will love me. Uh, no, he won't, Mac. No, no, he, he won't. won't. <laughs> Ultimately, it's revealed in the storyline that this was some kind of ruse to trick Vader, but that's really not important. And Tony Schiavone does not really even explain this on the pay-per-view. Like, he... It actually seems to be under the impression that it was all for real, which I don't believe is the storyline, but I've not seen all the TV that led to this, so I guess I can't speak with total accuracy on that. If you hadn't watched any of the TV, when you go to watch that main event, all of the explanation that you're given is Mick Foley was powerbombed, he got amnesia, he lost his bag, he found his bag, and now they're here. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's the blood feud. That's the Texas death match. He lost his bag. And this does turn out to be an absolutely brutal, violent, devastating match. But, yeah, the storyline that led to it kind of ensured that no one would care. Yes. Um, so we've got various other fun odds and ends we'll be able to get into as we go through this show. But... Uh, getting into it, it's October 24th, 1993. We're at the Lakefront Arena in New Orleans, Louisiana. There's about 6,000 people in attendance, only about half of them paid, so 3,000 in attendance. Uh, Pay-per-view does about a 0.5 buy rate for 100,000 buys, so kind of nothing special as far as business, pretty typical for WSW in this era. Yeah. Um, on commentary, we've got the team of Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura, I always enjoy Jesse Ventura and WCW because no one has ever cared any less about what they were doing than Jesse Ventura doing commentary on a WCW show. He is deeply, deeply into his who gives a shit phase. <laughs> he spends most of this show talking about Tony Schiavone's costume. Yeah, which is brilliant. The Halloween yes. costumes are a pretty great gimmick. Oh, absolutely. Like, that's... If I could change one thing, I, I would desperately want these Halloween costumes to come back, with the exception of Eric Bischoff's, which we'll get to. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the show opens with... This was probably five minutes long, right? Oh, God, this, yes. This is like a mini-movie of kids trick-or-treating in a neighborhood... And one of the kids saying, hey, let's go to that house. And it's like the spookiest, creepiest haunted house. And they 
go to the house, like ring the doorbell, and Tony Shavani opens the door and invites them to come in. And then he eventually like rips his skin off to reveal that he's a monster. It is at this point that I feel that I must explain that this looks so much like a pedophile kidnapping children on oh, Halloween. Yeah. Tony Schiavone looks like a total pervert here. And like they're playing that up. And like that's never really been a thing on camera before. Like Tony Schiavone as a character doesn't really exist. Tony Schiavone's just a play by play guy. So for him here to just be like, hey kids, come into my house, I'll show you something scary. My wife made cookies out of love for kids. And it's like, what the fuck is this? They probably spent a hundred grand on this. Easily. Like, like this, it is not cheap to do a professional television shoot. That is an expensive thing to do. And there are like dynamic cuts and like expensive cameras were used because literally the cameras used on this are many, many, many times more expensive and better than the ones they use on the, the actual show. Dog shit they use on the actual show. Yes. Like, it looks so much better, and yet it's such a waste. It's exactly the same as the other videos that they had done. Like, the one with Davy Boy Smith and Sting on a beach with Cheatham the Midget. Like, it, it's... <laughs> Vader's White Castle of Fear. The madness that, like, they sat in a boardroom and came up with to spend this money on. This is what's so amazing. Bischoff always says, like, oh, they told me I had to cut costs. This seems like a good place to cut costs. Don't do this. Like, the idea that your show looks this cheap and crappy and you're spending $100,000 easy on, like, little spots before the show that don't hype anything, I don't get it, man. It is spectacularly weird. I yeah. feel like he sort of explained this kind of thing on his podcast. Now I can't remember what the explanation was. I yeah. think it, it was probably one of those, oh, it was a different pot of money explanations that I always hate. Yeah. That's like how it, a business works. There's all these different pots of money. There isn't one actual budget. No, of course not. Yeah, the, the less said about that part, the better. <laughs> And then Eric Bischoff welcomes us to the show. What the fuck is he wearing? Look, Eric Bischoff, there might be a better explanation to this, but for fuck's sake, he's wearing a Confederate general outfit. <laughs> this is another thing that, like, Eric Bischoff, you've been put in this job because your successor was fired for being racist. What are you doing? And, like, it's almost the kind of thing where you would think, like, oh, somebody made him wear that. But he's in charge now. Yeah. Like, it seems like it would be a rib on him, but now he's running this show. Yeah, the year before, he's a vampire. Here, he's a fucking Confederate general. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. And we're, like, deep into, like, ratty beard Eric yeah. Bischoff, where he just looks like a scumbag. <laughs> Which I love as a heel look for him. Oh, God, yeah. Eric Bischoff was just a born heel. And then we go to ringside, where we have Shivani and Ventura in costumes. Shivani is dressed as Jesse Ventura, which is amazing. It is a great costume. And, like, literally, like, Jesse Ventura is so fascinated by seeing Tony Shivani dressed as him that he can't let it go. 
every segment is just him being like, yeah, I like your costume. I kind of wish they dressed as each other. I think I would have liked to see Jesse as Tony. There's no way that Jesse Ventura no. answers phone calls from Tony Schiavone before they're actively on the air. I don't think Jesse would have let himself be put in that position. Jesse is instead a doctor, and he refers to himself as Bourbon Street's number one gynecologist. There's a woman in the crowd right behind where they're standing who, when he says that out loud, goes, <laughs> which oh, no. was terrifying. Oh, no. Another of those how-did-this-make-air things. Yes. At, at Again, that point, what are you going to do? Up this company. They're live. What are you going to do? Yeah. And then we've got our opening match. Harlem Heat and the Equalizer against... Okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I need you to slowly and meaningfully say the next names that you're about to say. The Shockmaster. Charlie Norris. Ugh. And Ice Train. Ice Train. Ice Train looking like Big E's much fatter older brother. He really was. Yeah, like, I kept waiting him for, do, for him to do the wiggle here. Like, this has got to be the least talented team <laughs> ever who, assembled. Who the fuck is Charlie Norris? He was Low Raid Tatanka from the Indies. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, I, I'm vaguely aware of him. And Ice Train, who somehow, it turns out, was in WCW for years because... We've reviewed the Song of Ice and Fire where he feuded with Scott Norton in 96. He has a job for minimum five years. And Eric Bischoff's done interviews where he's just like, yeah, I thought Ice Train was great. He had a ton of potential. Like, (laughs) what are you talking about? And there are times where you listen to Eric Bischoff talk and you're like, how did this guy run a successful wrestling company? Yeah, And it'll be like, wow, he's saying all this smart stuff. I really get where he's coming from. And then he'll just veer off and be like, yeah, Ice Train was going to be the next fucking Goldberg. And I'm like, (laughs) what are you talking about? And the Shockmaster. Yes. We have never talked about the Shockmaster, so let's do it. The Shockmaster, aside from being part of, I would say, the best moment of comedy that wrestling has ever produced. Would you say that? Yes. I watch that clip all the time. Here... When was the Shockmasters debut? I think it was like I think it was Clash of the Champions in August on the so, lead into Fall Brawl. So it's what three months later? Yeah, less. He is already dressing as himself in yes. jeans and flannel, wearing a hard hat. He yes. is absolutely just Fred himself. Yeah, Tony Schiavone calls him Uncle Fred on commentary at one point. And in fact, he says, he, we're not allowed to call him Uncle Fred. Like, he's not Uncle Fred. Uncle Fred is what Cody Rhodes, who at that point was a small <laughs> child, yes. called the Shockmaster because he, the Shockmaster and Dusty Rhodes were real-life best friends. Like, that... How did that work its way onto television? Apparently, the legend is that Cody was sitting there, probably you know, five years old or whatever, watching the Clash of the Champions when he debuted. And when he fell, tripped, and his helmet came off, Cody went, is that Uncle Fred? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so to recap the Shockmaster, he is supposed to run through a wall, and Ole Anderson is going to do a pre-recorded promo to give him 
a really deep, intimidating voice. He's got a sparkly cape and a stormtrooper's helmet. This was going to suck anyway. Yeah, here's the thing. Like, this is going to be terrible no matter what. Everyone always refers to this as like this great fuck-up. Please understand that the Shockmaster was going to be a miserable disaster. His costume looked absolutely fucking horrible. <laughs> and it was just destined for horrible failure. Like, this is some, like... He would. He was just destined to be a Dungeon of Doom member eventually down the road, you know? So you've got there on the set of A Flare for the Gold. You've got Ric Flair, and you've got, like, Sid and Harlem Heat and uh, the British Bulldog and Sting and uh, another person or two. But anyway, the Shockmaster runs through the wall. He trips because someone installed a board to give the wall more structure and he didn't realize it was there. He trips, his helmet comes off. Everybody just cracks up at this point. It's live, everybody's laughing. Like, um, I, we, I watch this video so many times at this point that my favorite part is the lines you hear off camera yes. from the other wrestlers. Booker T is like, who is that motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> Davey boy goes, Jesus, he fell flat on his fucking ass. <laughs> you just heard Sting quietly in the background going, oh, no. <laughs> That's the earnest st Sting reaction. And somehow Sid stays in character. Sid does not break for one yeah, second. Sid is so dialed in. He's like, I don't care who the Shockmaster is. <laughs> yeah. And then poor Fred Ottoman. This poor motherfucker has to stand up, put his helmet back on, and let Arn Ole Anderson from a, a small closet, because Ole doesn't know this has happened. No. He's in the closet with the microphone. So Ole starts talking before the Shockmaster's even to his feet and ready. So Fred has to stand there looking all intimidating while Ole Anderson does this horrible voice that you can barely understand, gives an undiscernible promo, and then they just cut back to all the other guys standing there, and they're just like, uh, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> oh, my God. And somehow, I've got we've got something worse to talk about in this match. We do. That's Harlem Heat and their debut gimmick, where they were convicts in shackles, who had been won in a poker game by Colonel Robert Parker. Guys, this happened. Was this when Watts was still around? I don't this remember. idea, right? Well, do you know who takes credit for Harlem Heat? Sid. Really? Sid has said multiple times that some version of that was his idea. To have two poor, down-on-their-luck black guys be managed by a rich white guy. Like, he pitched that. Oh, wrestlers really are the dumbest people on the planet. He holds that he didn't mean for them to be slaves. He just meant for them to be like a like young black men under the control of a rich white man, but not slaves. <laughs> but oh. yeah, that's a real thing he admitted to. Yeah, this is post-Bill Watts, which is another, like, hey, Eric Bischoff, remember how you got this job? Why is this still here? Oh, my God. Like, if I had taken over, like, 
and I know this is me. Like, I'm not yeah. the same as the people who were in charge in 1993. But, like, Harlem Heat never would have seen the light of day again. I would have burned the footage. Especially knowing that the way that Bill Watts got fired is accusations of racism. Yeah, it would just be like, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to make sure there is nothing anyone could say is racist on our show. Like, yes. we are going to stay a million miles away from any racist storylines. So instead, Harlem Heat are no longer managed by Colonel Robert Parker. They're just here doing nothing. Yeah. They're With Kane, the equalizer. They're Kane and Cole, not Booker and Stevie at this point. When did they become Booker and Stevie? I don't know. That's a really interesting transition. Like, yeah, how do their names just get changed? They're just like, yeah, we were never Cole and Kane. We were Booker and Stevie. Sometime in 1994. All right, fair enough. Yeah. About the time Jerry started managing them. Clearly someone realized, like, hey, we need to make this less racist. And then you have the Equalizer, who is Dave Sullivan. Yeah. Um, Who briefly got over as a stupid dyslexic character. Yes. Evad. Evad. (laughs) Um, here, he when he walks to the ring, he says repeatedly directly into the camera, I'm going to rip their faces off. <laughs> oh, boy. And Charlie Norris, who is a Native American wrestler. Yes. Uh, I honestly don't even know if he ever got tagged into this match. I can't say anything for or against Charlie Norris. No, I cannot think of all. This is the only Charlie Norris match I remember. Yeah. What is this face? What are these? This face team? What do they have in common with each other? Well, um, <laughs> they don't have much going on. Yeah. Do we agree that this is a showcase for Ice Train? Like he, I. The thing is, Shockmaster's over. Yeah, like that's what got the crowd popping when Shockmaster got in there, but. Ice Train did actually look pretty good here. Like, when I say he reminded me of Big E, that's a compliment. Yeah. Like, honestly, if you see Ice Train here, you can see potential. Later, when he's bulked up by another 50 pounds of steroids, that's going to go away. <laughs> like, steroids and Pete's are going to take their toll on his career. But here, he looks good. This Shock- is- they probably should have just run with the Shockmaster as Uncle Fred. They should have just called him Uncle Fred, right? <laughs> Sure, because Shockmaster is not a good name anyway. It doesn't even make sense. He looks like a construction worker. Like, the Shockmaster does not work with that anymore. So, nothing much happens in this match. Um, Faces get the win after Shockmaster hits some kind of bear hug slam on Booker T. It was not really that bad of a match. I was actually surprised it was okay. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't hate it. I kind of tuned it out for the most part. Um, Then we go to Eric Bischoff interviewing Terry Taylor, who will be one of the two referees in the Ric Flair-Rick Rude match uh, later on tonight. This is a Terry Taylor face turn. If anyone cares. Okay, but here's one of my major problems with WCW shows. Like, we've watched and reviewed so many of these WCW shows. And they do such a miserable job of explaining the stories as the show goes along. Like, 
I guess they sort of suggest by the commentary in the Rick Rude Ric Flair match that Terry Taylor took this assignment to help Rick Rude win. But did he? Because <laughs> there's no indication of that. And he doesn't mention that during this. Like, what's the story? It seemed like he was turning face, but I have no memory of what it led to, and I don't think it led to much of anything. It's just bizarre. Like, they had no concept of through-line storytelling for their shows. And they never got it. Like, to the end of WCW, they never developed this. How many pay-per-views have we watched where there's just some nonsense storyline they're trying to tell through the night? Dozens! Yeah, like (laughs) that Halloween Havoc where Hogan was saying he wasn't going to wrestle Piper unless he got a signed contract from Sting saying he wouldn't interfere. Yeah, like, the number of WCW shows with, like, just nonsense storylines for nonsense stipulations... For their main, oh, if the NWO wins, they can do whatever they want. And these are things that are like, they're not mentioned on TV beforehand. They just, they show up to the show, start doing the storyline. It has no impact on the match whatsoever. So it's as if it never mattered. Which Bischoff on his podcast is always talking about like wrestling matches need stakes. What are the stakes of this match? You know? He infamously said a porno has better stakes than such and such match. And yet, not practicing what he preaches. No, all he did was the half-assedly throw stakes onto matches where the stakes didn't make any sense and he never followed through. Next up, we've got Paul Orndorff against Ricky Steamboat. This was going to be Ricky Steamboat against somebody else, but the other guy was hurt, so we got Orndorff instead. Um, Orndorff is managed by the Assassin, who is the legendary Jody Hamilton. Not really clear what he's doing here. He's been doing something with Dusty Rhodes, is our understanding. Yeah. I mean, we understand that Jody Hamilton was kind of like the peak road agent in WCW at this point. Like, he was the one doing finishes and putting matches together and waiting in the gorilla position. Not something I would want on my resume. Yeah. so Finished man for 1993 WCW. Exactly. So, I mean, he's just kind of there. I guess he's just helping put some heat on this, I guess. But, like, is there anyone alive watching this show who has any idea who he is? have to be pretty old. I mean, his heyday was like the 70s, right? Yeah, and I mean, he was amazing. Like, one of the great heels. I love the assassin. But, like, at this point, he's not adding anything to this match. Paul Orndorff is old and washed up here. Much less the assassin. Um, so, it's a Ricky Steamboat match, so, of course, it's going to be pretty good. Um, lots of arm work. I, I just love how everything Ricky Steamboat does is interesting. Like... Yes. For a lot of this match, he's just got, like, Orndorff on the mat, and he's, like, riding him with a hammerlock, and yet totally fascinating to watch. He does... Ricky Steamboat's signature move is the arm drag, which is literally, like, the thing you learn on day one of wrestling school. And yet, he has variations and versions of that that are just beautiful. Like, he does one in this one where he's, like, running full speed as Paul Orndorff is running towards him. And he just kind of, like, jumps over him, grabs his arm, twists, and they both, like, switch positions. And it's like, what the fuck was that? How far are you going to go to do an arm drag? 
So this is a good match that went on for quite a bit longer than it really needed to. They got almost 20 minutes here. Now, that's way too much. Or a match with, you guessed it, no stakes. And the thing is, and this is going to be such a theme for this show, it doesn't have a finish. WCW could not do, like, they never got good at finishes. It's just like something they never figured out. And that's like the one thing that Eric Bischoff actually owns about WCW is he'll be like, yeah, 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 we were the greatest company of all time, but our finishes fucking sucked and they never got better. Yeah, so here Steamboat is counted out after Assassin hits him with a loaded headbutt on the floor. And that's our finish. And I doubt this led to much of anything afterwards. I'm sure it didn't. Just imagine how desperate for finishes you have to be to hire Johnny Ace to be your finish man. Like... He had that rep from All Japan. Yeah, I bet he did. (laughs) Not deserved. Next up for the television title, Lord Steven Regal defends against Davey Boy Smith. This was the surprise of the night for me. This This turned out to be a really, really great match. I loved this. Yeah, they have like a classic, like European technical mat wrestling match that who knew Davy Boy Smith was capable of? Not only is Davy Boy capable of like British style mat wrestling, but he's doing like standing flips and like spinning around. And like, this is the most agile I've ever seen him by like a million times. And he seems so happy. Yeah. Like, this is naturally what he always should have been doing. And he just always had to wrestle, like, the crappy WWE style or the crappy WCW style. Like, he seems so much freer and better doing it this way. He's probably fired up that they're about to go on a tour of England. Um, unfortunately, that tour is going to draw terribly and lead to the end of him with WCW. Uh, they brought him in on a big contract with the idea that he was going to be a huge draw in Europe, and that didn't pan out. I don't know what kind of TV WSW had in Europe at this point. It might not have been any, and it turned out that just putting the British Bulldog's name on a poster was, in fact, not enough to draw. I don't think any one person would have been enough to draw for WCW at this point. Maybe Hogan. Maybe. Maybe. But, like, I also love, like, the disparity, like, the character Steve the William Regal is playing here is amazing. Like the like posh Lord British guy who's looking down on like the the cockney little like little British boy, David Boy Smith. Like it's a great disparity. I would have loved to see these guys wrestle for like six months. This is great. Ooh. So of course, TV title, fifteen minute time limit. Of course that's the finish. Like just sort of inevitable when you've got Regal defending on pay-per-view. Right. We're going to the time limit. Um, they blew the timing on the finish here, it seemed like. like the, the, the announcer's doing the countdown, but he says how much time is left, and then he somehow adds more to it. So when Bulldog hits the running power slam, there is like time is not up yet, so Regal has to kick out. And then Bulldog gets a pile driver and covers, and then the time limit expires. And then the ref has to, like, literally leap over him and waste 20 seconds to get there. Yeah. 
Not a well-executed finish here, but yeah, an absolute, like, gem of a match. Yeah, like, this is one of those matches where, like, if you just want to go watch some weird stuff that you've never seen before, like, go back and watch this. It We've mentioned before how hard it was for William Regal to find people who could work his style throughout his American career. It's such a treat to see somebody who can wrestle his style. And to see Davey Boy completely out of his normal element like this, like, this is worth going and finding and seeing. Yeah, I mean, Bulldog's really one of the only guys I can think of who he ever really... I mean, like, Benoit is the other guy who he really gelled with. They always had amazing matches. And right. Other than that, it's a pretty short list. Yep. Um, then we've got Bischoff on the stage. He is going to spin the wheel and determine the stipulation for the main event. Uh, we've got... What, what options did I see on here? Dog collar match, Russian chain match... Steel Cage, Barbed Wire, Prince of Darkness match, Balls Count Anywhere, First Blood, lands on the Texas Death match. So that's our stipulation for the main event. And boy, do I have some thoughts about Texas Death matches for when we get there. Uh, next up for the U.S. title, we've got Dustin Rhodes defending against Steve Austin. These guys really seem to have a match on like every single WCW pay-per-view from like 1992 to 1994. As near as I can tell, they are the entire WCW mid-card. It's just these two. Like in terms of up-and-comers with potential, Pretty it's much. just them. And neither of them ever hits it big in WCW, which... When Who you had more potential? I mean, I think Dustin at this point would have been the guy I was saying. I mean, like, I like Steve Austin here, but Dustin isn't the fucking man here. Wait, let me be clear about this. <clears throat> These two at this point, when you see them, this should have been Rock Triple H. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is your top face and your top heel for the next decade. Like, they just have it. And together they have it. Like, this... Austin... People say that like Steve Austin wasn't really Steve Austin until he got to WWE. And that's true in a big way. Like he becomes such a more lived in version of that character. But Austin is still Austin here. He's incredible and he's oh, vicious. So good in the ring. And he's such a vicious, vile heel of a dickhead. And like he is maybe the purest heel I've seen. I, I can't even think when. He's like Miz level, irredeemable heel. You know what I mean? And it's, I just, this should have been so much more. These two should have been the future. And they fucked it up so bad. They end up firing both of these guys within like a year and a half, two years. And I, th I wonder if things hadn't gone Bischoff's way, if he hadn't been put in charge, how things may have been different for these two. Because it was Bischoff. Oh, yeah. JR would have with these guys. JR would have made these two the two top stars. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. Bischoff didn't see anything in either of these two. That's just, it's clear. He didn't. And he was wrong. And he oh, can yeah. just be wrong about that. Like, I would say, honestly, when, when we talk about Bischoff's big disappointments and big failures and letdowns, I don't blame him for not seeing Mankind in Cactus Jack. I probably wouldn't have pushed Cactus Jack either. But Austin and Rhodes, it's there, man. It's on the screen. 
looks like Austin has the match won with a cradle with his feet on the ropes, but the referee sees it, waves off the count. Uh, Rhodes then catches Austin with a schoolboy for the pin, and immediately after the bell, Austin levels Rhodes with the title belt and Rhodes blades. Um, so this feud would continue, of course. Did they ever get like a gimmick match blow off, or did they just keep having normal singles matches? <laughs> Um, not a. Per- they might have had a two out of three falls match, but never like a cage match or anything like that. Yeah, this so should have been like a cage match thing, right? Just yeah, like a bloody NWA style brawl. I would have been very into that. Yeah. We then get an ad for WCW Battle Bowl, their upcoming November pay per view. You know what? I take it back when I said that they never have bad gimmicks that they repeat. Battle Bowl. They brought back Battle Bowl. <laughs> At least it's not Starcade anymore, but giving it its own pay-per-view was not a good idea. I think that pay-per-view did like 50,000 buys or something like that. Are they still doing it for real, or was that just the first one? Were they like, it? it's actually random? <laughs> I don't, I've never, has that been confirmed or is that an urban legend? Because people also said that the spin the wheel make the deal wasn't gimmick the first time, and I don't believe that. No, that's just plainly not true. I, I mean, maybe it wasn't random, or maybe Dusty just specifically chose the people so it would seem random. And even so, like, but like, there's shit in there where it just doesn't make sense. And like, that continue. like, it, that's not really the case here. Like, when you get to this one, like, most of the teams make sense. Oh, yeah. It's, like, guys who are feuding are teaming with each other or, like, tag teams are split up and facing each other. Like, every match has, like, something like that to it. Let the record show that one of the matches at Battle Bowl is King Kong and Dustin Rhodes versus the Equalizer and Awesome Kong. What a match. An <laughs> event anywhere in America. Anywhere in the world. Uh, next up for the tag titles, we've got Two Cold Scorpio and Marcus Alexander Bagwell against the Nasty Boys. Yes, Two Cold Scorpio and Marcus Alexander Bagwell are the world tag team champions. Let's, American Males 1.0. Let's take a slight deviation to talk about the tag team of Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Two Cold Scorpio. Because... Is that the most mismatched a tag team has ever been? It's definitely up there. And you uh, have Two Cold Scorpio, who's like the coolest dude ever. But and for Marcus some reason, Bagwell, who's not. It must be said, Two Cold Scorpio has trouble portraying that on screen because Two Cold Scorpio might be the worst promo in the history of wrestling. Pretty bad. He's really bad. But in real life, he's just the coolest dude in the world. Marcus Alexander Bagwell, look, I'm going to say something nice about Buff Bagwell here for a second. If I was running this company in 1993, I would have pushed him too. He looked great. Yeah. He's pretty good in the ring. He's really coming along. Like He, he somehow it, got worse as his career went, went along. He seems like he has a future. Like he, He's got a good look. He's like doing pretty good. Like Putting him in a tag team like this makes a lot of sense. Like I would think he had potential. The best thing that comes out of this tag team is the story that Scorpio tells in a shoot interview about the time that he took Marcus Alexander Bagwell to a barbecue in the hood 
And Marcus Alexander Bagwell almost got shot like five times. <laughs> of course he did. Like literally, Two Gold Scorpio had to like rescue him and take him out of the hood. <sighs> oh, do oh. you think that the European tour after this is the infamous European tour where Scorpio goes jogging on the beach? You know what? I think that it is. And just in case, let me paint you guys a word picture. <laughs> You're Ric Flair. You and your wife are on a wonderful European tour. You're sitting in beach chairs, looking at the sun, looking at the surf coming in. You're having a wonderful day. It's, it's a vacation that you've always dreamed of. Coming jogging down the beach is young jobber Too Cold Scorpio in a thong and nothing else. A black thong and nothing else jogging and as he passes you by his dick unfurls like a sail out of the side of his thong pops out in front of your wife what do you do as it bounces up and down in front of you like a trampoline i i think what happened is he called the office and got scorpio fired that's right? literally what scorpio says happened now, I've heard Scorpio failed a bunch of drug tests, and that's why he got fired, which also doesn't believable. sound implausible to me, no. However, like, that is one of the greatest stories in wrestling history. And that is all... Here's the other thing. Like, this is one of the greatest urban legend wrestling trips of all time, because this is also the one where Sid stabs Arn with the scissors. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah. Like, we'll this is such there. a crazy trip, guys. Don't take wrestlers to Europe. No. Just don't leave them unsupervised in a hotel in a foreign country. You just know shit's going to go down. Like, guys are traveling together. They're away from their families. They're on buses. Like, they're of course they're going to get fucked up. Yeah, they're miserable. Yeah. They're drinking and taking pills. Like, it's going to go bad. Uh, one more quick Scorpio story. Uh, Scorpio claims this is that much he. Much more entertaining than this match was. Yes. He claims that he invented the 450 splash by trying to jump from the top rope, do a flip, and land on his feet and missing. So just let that settle in for a second. <laughs> he, ah. over, he overdid it, <laughs> he was too athletic. It looks like the faces are going to get the win after Scorpio hits a 450 splash, but the ref gets distracted, putting Bagwell out of the ring. That allows Sags to hit Scorpio with a loaded boot, and Nobbs gets the pin. Nasty Boys win the titles. All right. I don't know why they put the titles on Bagwell and Scorpio, like, literally the week before. And literally, the only thing that Shivani has to say about it is, I bet you didn't think that Scorpio and Bagwell were going to be the tag team champions coming to this show, huh? Were you, Ventura? Ventura being like, whatever. No, I didn't. Yeah, no, I didn't. Howdy, Shivani, <laughs> you fucking idiot. And then they lose him. So it's like, oh, well, that was a fluke, I guess. We then have Bischoff interviewing Sid and Colonel Robert Parker. Kind of weird to have Confederate General Bischoff interviewing plantation owner rob parker but how about this sid promo i just we've said it so many times sid and yet it still was 
Money. It's still bare saying, guys. When you go and watch Sid, it is amazing how he jumps off the fucking screen. It is. There's nobody like that ever in the history of the business. Like, he's so over here. Wildly over. And, like, he's such a villainous person. But the fans are chaining Powerbomb from the second he walks out. I there's vi- I don't know if I can think of anybody else where the gap between their potential to draw money and the actual money they drew is greater because Sid really could never stay on track long enough to have a run. My God. Like such a tantalizing potential. You know what I mean? Like six foot eight built like a Greek God, unlimited charisma and intensity. Not good in the ring, but who cares? Just have a power bomb, guys. But like underrated in the ring, frankly. Like he's he, not a disaster. His matches are just kind of boring. Yeah, but I mean, he bumps better than you remember him doing than you think that he does. He, like he, his job is to buy time until the finish, and that's what he does. But like, and the other thing is, like, he executed moves like he had something against the person he was doing it to. Yeah. Like, I can't overstate that enough. Like, so many monsters that they try to build. I'll always use Ezekiel Jackson as the example of this. Like, big guy, looks like a monster. He gets in the ring, and he's so gentle with guys and the moves that he does that it doesn't work. He doesn't come across as an aggressive monster at all. The way that you perform the moves and the aggressiveness that you put into them matters so much in conveying your credibility to the audience. So, for example, like, Vader... Is seems like a dangerous psychopath because he is a dangerous psychopath. Uh, Uncle Fred does not come across that way, despite probably being as big and strong as Vader was, right? Yeah, sure. Close. Yeah. In this case, Sid looks the part, but then when it comes time to choke slam you, he tries to put you through the floor. Yeah. When it comes time to power bomb a jobber, that jobber goes to the hospital. And it just, it makes it so much more compelling and so much more credible to, like, his role as a monster. That you're just like, oh shit, he actually fucks people up for real. So we've got Sting against Sid here. This is to determine who the franchise of WCW is. Um, Sid and Vader have been teaming up for the previous couple months. They're the masters of the powerbomb. Great but name. they were going to split, and Sid was going to beat Vader uh, for the title at Starcade. We know this because they're doing the Disney tapings at this point, and they filmed like weeks and weeks of TV leading up to that, and with Sid as the champion that they never actually got to use because they go on the European tour right after this, and Sid and Arn Anderson get into their insane fight that ends with Sid stabbing Arn like a dozen times and almost killing him. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so a bunch of the boys are in the bar. They're drinking. They're having a good time. They're playing the dozens. And I guess Arn, you know, got in some shots on Sid that were a little too stiff. You know. It's generally accepted that Arn instigated this situation. <laughs> Yes. That and does like, not make I it okay. I didn't realize this for a long time. 
And I always wondered, like, how the hell did Sid ever work again after he almost killed Arn? It turns out Arn, like, pulled out the scissors. Yeah. So, like, Arn was... Arn had a reputation at the time for being kind of a bully. Um, like, we we remember Arn as a, a lovely human being, but it's important to remember that the people that you admire weren't always necessarily great people in all situations. Like, this is kind of a rough time in Arn's life, too. So, like, he's kind of trying to make the transition out of wrestling, and things aren't going great for him, and the company's on its ass, and he's here comes... drinking a lot at this point. Hot shot Sid, and you got to remember that Sid didn't really follow most of the conventions of like locker room etiquette because he didn't really feel like he had to. So he, he didn't, did he not. wasn't really like hanging out with the guys. That's not what he did. So like, there's heat, and stuff happens. Yeah. So they, you know, they get into it at the bar. Maybe there's some shoving, but it's not serious. It's like, okay, get out of here, guys. You know, go go to bed. They both go up, go upstairs to their room. Sid is stewing. He breaks the leg off a chair in his hotel room, which is pretty damn scary to think about. Yes. He goes and finds Arn's room, you know, pounds on the door. Arn should not answer the door. Arn should just ignore it. And if Sid won't leave, like, yeah, call security. Like, have them get Sid out of there. Yeah. Arn instead opens up his hotel door and like grabs some scissors out of the bathroom and like is like, okay, let's do it, big man. And they get into it. And Sid gets stabbed, but he eventually gets the scissors away from Arn and stabs him repeatedly. Like, this is bad. This is a near murder here. Like, Sid easily could have been charged with attempted murder. Yes, assault with a deadly weapon. I I think they just got him out of the country fast enough, and it was just kind of like, well, they're just wrestlers. Who cares? If this happens in the States, though... Sid goes to prison. Yeah, no question. I mean, yeah. Yes, it does, like, hard time. It's really difficult to get past this. And, like, we're so complimentary about Sid on this podcast because when you put him in a ring, like, he shines like a diamond, but... Let's be clear, like the man attempted to murder Arn Anderson. Yeah. That's a thing that happened. That's a th- you can't get past it. No matter how much somebody instigates something or whatever, you don't try to stab him to death with scissors. So when you get the scissors away from him, which you know, shame on Arn for pulling out scissors, although Sid had a big wooden chair leg, but both guys could have handled this better, we can say. Oh, God, um, yes. And, like, there should have been somebody in charge of this situation. Like, there was no, there was nobody in charge of making sure the wrestlers weren't getting out of control. They were just on their own. Yeah. Like, no Scorpio, literally, let, let's bring Scorpio, Scorpio back to this. Scorpio saves Arn Anderson's life. Like, Scorpio is the one who pulls Sid off of him. Like, that's a real thing that happens. Because it's just the boys. Like, there's nobody else there. Ooh. So, yeah. That's how Sid went from being WCW champion to getting fired. And instead, we got the amazing Vader Flair match at Starcade, which we're going to have to cover. Yeah, and that's amazing. But I'll always wonder what could have been. Like, the big Sid babyface run, you know? Yeah, that... Because the fans were ready for it. Oh, they totally were. They're cheering Sid over Sting in this match. And it's Sting. Yeah. 
they're chanting for Sid, and Shivani on commentary is having to claim that they're actually chanting Sting, which they're not. And then at some point they switch over to just chanting Power Bomb, Power Bomb. It's not ambiguous. And like they like Sting, they cheer for him when he comes out, but they want Sid. Yeah. I think this is the best Sid match I've ever seen. This was pretty good. Yeah. Sid's bumping all over the fucking place for Sting. Yeah, they f- they fight into the crowd, which is not something you saw very often in the early 90s. Um Sid, you know, works in a long bear hug. It is a Sid match after all. Uh Sting fights out, hits a couple stinger splashes. Um, Rob Parker accidentally grabs Sid's foot and trips him. That allows Sting to roll up Sid for the pin. This is going to be the impetus for Sid's face turn as he's going to you know, kick Parker to the curb and go solo. It is so funny the way that, that, that this finish happens. As Colonel Parker grabs both of their feet, A, why is he grabbing both of their feet? Why grab Sid's feet at all? And then he trips Sid, thinking it's Sting, and holds on to his foot. Sid's foot does not look like Sting's foot. (laughs) It's a very baffling finish. Next up, for the prestigious WCW International World Heavyweight Championship, Rick Rude defends against Ric Flair. What was your reaction to seeing these guys were going to wrestle each other? As we've established, you don't look at the cards in advance. See, this is the, again, every time we do one of these shows, there's at least one match that I'm like, ooh, all right. I wasn't expecting this. This is that one. I was just like, oh, shit. I didn't even know Rick Rude and Ric Flair had a high-profile title match. This is great. It's cool to see Rick Rude as the world champion. Hell yeah, it is. It's, it's like the whole entrance, and he takes the robe off with the big gold belt. It looks great. And him and Flair is such a good national rivalry, because it's just like, Flair's starting to get kind of old at this point, and Rude's kind of the new hot shit. Yeah. Like, it's a natural rivalry. They try really hard to make Rick Rude their new guy, and it doesn't work, and it's not a good fit. And that's a shame, but they try. What's because missing that's what from this Rick is. Rude at this point? Yeah. He's just not Rick Rude anymore by now. Yeah. He cut the hair, man. Damn haircut. Just doesn't look right with the buzz cut. Just doesn't. He looks so much more like a pervert now. (laughs) Yeah. He was meant to have long hair. Other than the hair, though, he looks fantastic. He is in amazing shape here. Oh, and the tights that he had airbrushed for this are amazing. The tights (laughs) with flint. Beefy. And a fucking f- pumpkin on his ass. <laughs> As Michael okay. Buffer said, wearing the Halloween colors. I'm so glad that you mentioned Fifi. Let's talk about Fifi. <laughs> Who you know, the hell is this? Flair's wife now. That's his wife now? Yeah, they just got married a couple weeks ago. No shit, that's her? Yeah. Wow. All these years later. I mean, he was probably banging her back then. Well, I mean, literally, they explain that she's Flair's French maid. Yeah. That he brings to the ring. Everybody has a French maid, right? And, like, it's not like she's there in a French maid outfit to clean. It's literally like they're saying, like, yeah, this is the chick that Flair's banging. (laughs) 
Like that's it's as Ric Flair. That's as specific as they can make it. They can't say that, so they're just yeah. like, it's a French maid that he brings along on road trips. As if that's the most normal thing in the world. Of course. But yeah, they ended up married. They just got married uh, in September. Good for those crazy kids. Yeah, glad it worked out in the end. Yeah. Did you see the picture from Flair's wedding reception of Undertaker double fisting two whiskeys in one hand? No, but that's amazing. Yeah. Um, this is not the greatest match. Rick Rude WCW match is not having the best track record. No. In fact, I can't think of a single good match he ever had in WCW. Nothing jumps out at me. Yeah. Uh, this is better than that horrible match he had against Shono with that Halloween Havoc we reviewed last year, though. 25 minutes of headlocks. <laughs> Uh, Flair gets him in the figure four early. Rude gets out by getting to the ropes. Flair works on Rude's leg. Um, Flair hits Rude with a cross body that sends both guys over the top of the floor. Uh, Flair goes for an axe handle off the top down to the floor, but Rude uh, catches him with a shot to the gut. Rude tries to hit Flair with a chair, but Taylor gets it away from him. I should reestablished Terry Taylor is the outside referee. He's down on the floor. Yeah. For everything that added to this match. It really doesn't wind up making any difference at all, right? Not really. Um, Rude works Flair over. Flair makes a comeback, hits Rude with the Rude Awakening, which was a pretty good spot. You, We're not used to seeing guys steal each other's finishers at this point. That's that's actually a really good point. One of the first times I can remember something like that happening. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the ref gets bumped. Rude goes for a punch with a loaded fist, but Flair ducks and hits a back suplex. Flair then knocks out Rude with the foreign object. Taylor comes into the ring to count the pin, but the original referee wakes up and disqualifies Flair because he saw him use the weapon. So Rude retains on the disqualification. Flair then steals the belt. Yep. Causing, Big pop Rude, for that. causing Rude to steal Fifi. Fair trade. Women are property after all. Yeah, absolutely. All right. It's main event time. So Gary Michael Capetta. Well, first the announcers go over the rules of the Texas death match. And then the ring announcer does. I actually don't remember whether it was Buffer or Gary Michael Capetta for this one. Buffer did all the title matches. Yes. This is not a title match, although Vader is the WCW champion. What do you think of this not being for the title? What's the point of that? It feels... I'm not, I'm not sure what they would say that the reason was. It feels like a burial of Foley. Like, yeah. Because he doesn't deserve a title match. Like, no one would buy that this is a fucking title match. We'll give him his blow-off feud main event. But, like, the announcers seem like they are trying to distance themselves from this as it's happening. Like, this is like this is a main event, but the real main event already happened, so we're just watching another match. This is like, just some freak show. Like, Shivani doesn't even seem interested as this is going on. 
interestingly, Foley also had a non-title match against Sting at uh, Beach Blast 1992, which is pretty damn awesome match. That's that Sting said for a long time that was his best match of his career. I think it was off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just indicative of there's a certain level that Cactus Jack is allowed to get to in WCW, but they're not going any higher than that. At best, he's like a Rusev-style monster of the month, you know? Yeah. Like, he's just crazy guy who's going to put over the main eventer. Um, I mean, what do you think of that? How much further do you feel like he should have gone? None. Yeah? Like, look, I- I'm sure that people won't like me saying this, but the fact of the matter is that Cactus Jack didn't belong in the main event. Like, it wasn't a character that had a ton of legs. It wasn't a character that had any sort of mainstream marketability. He looked like shit. It was a bad look. It was... He did incredibly dangerous things that were, I agree, interesting, but that was a style that was totally out of line with the rest of the product at this time. Like, this wasn't the old NWA blood and guts days. Like, I guess there was a place in the company for somebody to be doing these things, but it wasn't the main event. For fuck's sake. Yeah, I just... It's so important to remember that when Mick Foley really got over, it was as a comedy character. Yes. He got over through his acting and comedic timing. He did not get over through being the grungy, insane person. The version of Mankind that first debuted is not the one that got over. The one, I mean, Mankind was a great foil for The Undertaker and a really good upper mid-card heel. But just he like wasn't any higher like, on the card there than he is here. Yeah, just like Cactus Jack here is a really good mid-card heel who you can you know, use for a month as a challenger to a world champion when they need something different to do. And you could have had, there's plenty of good mayo. Him against Ric Flair sounds really interesting. Him against Sting was great, you know. There's plenty of guys. Him against Sid. God, can you imagine what Sid would have done to him? And that's the career that he wanted, that he could have had, but he didn't want it. He wanted more. The ironic thing is that the way that he approached trying to get more was never going to work. The way that worked is when his body was finally so decrepit that he had to talk instead of wrestle. That's what finally got him over. Like, he, like, I. It's very possible that he pursued it in the complete wrong way the whole time and just accidentally, like, luck-fucked his way into it. I'm trying, you know, it doesn't seem like WCW gave him nearly enough promos. Like, the fact that he doesn't have a pre-match interview here is crazy. Yes. Like, he's in the main event. How are you not going to have him explain what this match means to him? Yeah, literally, you just get, like, one sentence of him being like, Cactus Jack can't get hurt as he's rocking back and forth, and that's all he gets. Yeah, no, you know, this man powerbombed me on concrete, tried to end my life. Tonight I'm going to end him. We don't get any of that. There's a, there's a possibility that if he had gotten more promo time, he could have tapped into some kind of Jake the Snake thing. But even, like, let's remember, Jake the Snake never got to the top either. Like, there's never, there isn't room at the top for guys like that. That's not what the top is. 
And so, like, when I hear people be like, man, why can't Cesaro get to the top of the card? And why can't blah, blah, blah get to the top of the card? There's a, there's a template. There's a shape that you can fit into the top of the card. And you can have different variations of that shape depending on what the audience wants. But the audience never really seems to want that. And that sucks. But it's not WCW's fault. So Vader is the WCW champion. He's got his manager, Harley Race, backing him up. Uh, Cactus is out first, and then he jumps Vader on the ramp. Uh, they are firing live rounds here. These punches are not worked. Oh, God, yeah. That's the only way to get Vader to sell him. <laughs> yeah, got to punch him for real. Um, I think they both bust each other open, punching each other over the eye. Yeah, I think so. I think they're trying to do that on purpose because Foley talks in his book about how not it's like you're not allowed to blade. You got to bust the eyebrow. Yeah, like blade in not permitted in WCW at this point. Yep. So instead, you got to do something much more dangerous. <laughs> and like uh, the entire process of busting the eyebrow sounds so horrifying. Oh God, how barbaric! I'm going to punch you right above your eye, really, really hard. And he hopes that I'll split you open and you'll bleed down into your eye. Like, literally, it's like, I guess it's the easiest place to make bleed on your body with a punch, but it's still not that easy. Yeah. I I would have made more sense just to pre-cut. Yes. But again, not? They're not allowed, again, they're not allowed to blade, and I think they're worried, like, Dustin Rhodes gets fired from WCW for blading in a match without permission. Like, I don't think they've gone all the way to that at this point, but I'm pretty sure blading is pretty strongly frowned upon. That's wild. Um, fully hit Vader with just a despicable chair shot about two minutes into this match. This, this is a fucked up match. And you know what? We don't give we give Vader. We think about him as the guy who dishes it out. We don't really give Vader enough Holy credit damn. for the damage he takes over his career. Holy shit! That um, that four way match at the In Your House pay per view, where he gets his eye cut open on the steps, he bleeds goddamn everywhere. His eye popped out in a match. Yeah, that he too. Even lined his eye out. Yeah, should mention that it's, I think it's like six months after this in 94 during a tour of Germany when um, Foley gets his head stuck in the ropes and gets his ear ripped off. Oof. Which really comes to define him and what a just horrific thing to have happen. But it, it's like when you think about your ear, like it's just cartilage. It's not that hard for it to get ripped off. If you grab hard and yank, It'll probably come off. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing that it hasn't happened to more wrestlers. I mean, cauliflower ear bearing what it is. Like, clearly ear injuries are pretty common. Yeah, I think it helps that... I think the real problem here was WWE used steel cables rather than actual ropes. Yeah. Or, I'm trying to remember the story there. Maybe on the tour they were using a ring with actual ropes. I think so, because he had been doing it like... All tightened them super tight because it was ropes and not cables and guys were trying to springboard and having trouble. Yeah, and then Vader came and like squashed him and the pressure of Vader pushing and the cords pushing is what popped it off. Yeah. But yeah, what a horrifying injury. 
Okay, I've just never even heard of that. It's just an ear popping the fuck off. Yeah. And they never referenced it on television. And like, I can't even blame them because they couldn't even show blood at the time. It's so it's so brutal. Like, how are you going to do that? Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, this isn't the right company. Is too much. Like, this isn't the right company to be this person in at this time. You know what I mean? Like, I think Bischoff has a very defensible position that like he was just kind of afraid of what Foley was going to do to himself. Like that he was going to hurt himself, that he was going to hurt people in the crowd doing these insane stunts. Like, I think that's reasonable. In fact, we have to talk about this now because he was absolutely right to feel that way because this is the match where Mick Foley tries to end his career. Mick Foley has come to the conclusion, and he admits this openly, he came to the conclusion that like his career was over, he was never going to go anywhere, he just wanted to cash in on his Lloyds of London insurance and just live out the rest of his life as a normal person. He creates a spot with Vader. Well, Vader's going to get him up on his back and then just completely, like, dead weight splash him on the ramp. 400 pounds. And that's going to end Foley's career. And what I mentioned earlier is, like, he knows that Vader's going to send it. There's no question. Like, if he's ever going to get paralyzed, this is how it's going to happen. How insane. Like literally, he tries to paralyze himself to get himself out. Somehow, yeah, that's the thing. He's okay. He gets right back up. (laughs) Like I'm sure it hurt, but yeah, he pretty much comes out of it just fine. But so when Eric Bischoff says, "I don't know what he was going to do. I couldn't trust him," he was right. Mick Foley tried to like commit insurance fraud through wrestling injury. Yeah, like he could have sued the company. So, as the boss of this company, yeah, I can sort of see that perspective. Just like, this guy wasn't a big star. We didn't really think he was going to be. And he did these crazy, insane things where he was going to hurt himself or hurt other people in the company. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Absolutely. I do Uh, wonder if at a different time it would have worked better. Like, if Foley had come along in the mid-80s when it was oh, more blood yeah. and guts, yeah, he could have been like Bruiser Brody. Yeah, I think he's meant for that style. It's, it was just the wrong... And, like, part of why, it's part of why he can get over later in the 90s when, they're allowed, when they start to push the envelope more. But, yeah, this is just the wrong time as, you know, both companies are trying to clean up their images. Yeah. He's trying to get over with rated R shit in a PG era. It's just not going to work. Yeah. So we forgot to explain the rules of the Texas Death Match. What are the rules of the Texas Death Match? Well, according to the thing they put up on the screen, if you pin people, you get a 30 second rest period. But falls don't count. Falls don't count. That's That's important to remember. Yeah. So basically, if you pin somebody, you just get a 30 second break. Everybody just hangs out. Take a breather. It's all good. Get some water. Get a snack. It's fine. Then you have to keep them down for 10 seconds after that. They have to not stand back up. So it's a last man standing match, but instead of 10 seconds, it's 40 seconds. The last man standing match is a definite improvement on the Texas death match. So much better. I just don't understand what the pins are even doing in this. Like, it doesn't make sense. 
No. And so Cactus actually scores the first pin of the match. He pins Vader on the ramp after multiple chair shots. And maybe uh, that's the reason you can't have this be for the title. It's because, like, Holy pins the champ. Twice. Yeah, which this match kind of feels backwards to me. It really seems like it should be Vader beating the hell out of Cactus. Right. And Cactus just keeps getting up. Yeah, that's but, the story. <laughs> but instead, like, Cactus mostly kicks the shit out of Vader. And, like, Vader keeps getting up. That's very strange. Yeah. So... Cactus hits the elbow drop off the ramp and then gets a second pin on Vader. Vader is once again able to answer the count. Uh, they are both bleeding all over at this point. Um, they fight through the crowd, back to ringside. Vader hits Cactus with a chair in the back of the head, which is just one of those spots that no one should ever do. It's just reprehensible man we hear a clicking sound as harley race has something in his hand we don't see what keep this in mind he's got check off stun gun in his hand here um, back in the ring vader goes up all the way to the top hits the vader salt i had forgotten he connected on this here my God, is it terrifying to watch Vader hit people with that moonsault. I I don't understand how people agreed to wrestle Vader at all. <laughs> and like, just think of the stuff Foley's had done to him in this feud now. He's been powerbombed on concrete, took the deadweight bump on the ramp on Vader's back, and now takes Vader's moonsault. And here's the thing. like The whole time you're wrestling Vader, you got to be thinking, like, okay, this is stiff, but whatever, I can get through it. But in the back of your head, you're like, this match is going to end with me losing. Vader's two finishers are either A, he jumps off the top rope and his 400 pounds fucking destroy me, or B, he spikes me on my neck. Yeah. Those are the two options. No good options here. No. Like, Vader's punches are terrifying. Just watching Vader punch people, it looks like he's hurting them. And also, there are ways to, to work a moonsault or work a splash like when we talked about rikishi jumping off the the cage onto val venus he tries his best to protect him he puts the hands down he sucks the belly and he does what he can vader does not oh. vader fucking splashes you oh so that gets a three count cactus manages to make it to his feet before the 10 count so we do get the cactus is resilient he won't stay down Probably would have had him, you know, get pinned three times, and he keeps, you know, he takes the power bomb, he takes the Vader bomb, he even takes the moon salt, and he still gets back up. How is he doing this? Yep. Instead, they go up on the ramp, Vader DDTs Cactus on a chair, Vader pins Cactus. Cactus gets to his feet during the 30-second rest period and DDTs Vader on a chair. Now, it seems like the fact that he got to his feet would mean, like, you know, the fall doesn't count, we continue. But then Harley Race shocks Cactus with a stun gun. Ugh. Cactus goes down. Like, he just kind of, like, 
pokes him with it on his leg. It's not well executed at all. And, like, Cactus doesn't even realize it's touching him at first, so then he does, like, a massive oversell, like, oh, my leg, and he falls down. And I, I guess the idea was that the ref didn't see him get up, so he still thinks that he's down. But we just see a close-up on Cactus. He falls down, and the referee immediately names Vader the winner. Yeah. Like, what? Awful finish to a match that I thought was very good. I never really connected with the match. Like, it was okay. I, I don't like death matches to begin with. I'm visibly uncomfortable when I watch Vader wrestle Cactus. Like, it's just, it's too far for me. Like, this is not what I like. And I know that I like, like, strong style, style Japanese matches and stuff where they stiff the shit out of each other. But this is something else, man. Nobody's protecting anybody here. People want to be hurt badly in these matches. I just, I can't do it. <laughs> Brutal, brutal match here. I mean, just the punches alone, but also the chair shots, the slams on the ramp, the sleeper spot, the moonsault. Like, Cactus just takes a hell of an ass kick in here. Vader does, too. And this is it for Cactus in WCW. Like, he doesn't have another high-profile match after this. I just I can't stop coming back to the fact that he really hoped with his whole heart that this match would end his career. What a weird like how do you get there? Like how do you end up in that place? Like it's just such a pit of depression that he was in. Yeah. And it's like it's such a dark dark thing to explore just thinking about it. And this is well he's making good money working like he's on a good solid contract with WCW here. Right. Like, the ske- their schedule's not that bad. He's not working that like wow, just like, this is all because like he can't get the push he wants. He's like willing to jeopardize his health. And see here's the thing is like his story eventually works out for the best, but it easily might not have. He could have been paralyzed here. Yeah. Or just like he goes into the indies and it doesn't work. Yeah, or ECW like, isn't really a thing. He never gets the call from Vince. And his story is just a sad, tragic, sad sack story. Yeah, it's easy to focus on the Mick Foley's and the Cody Rhodes's where they walked away and it worked out. Plenty of Wade Barrett's and Ryback's and other guys who tried to do that and didn't get anywhere with that. Ten years from now, when Ryback dies of an enlarged heart and a drug overdose, like it's going to be tragic. There are way more stories like that than there are positive ones. So, like he's just like working shitty indies until his body breaks down, and then he's doing convention appearances, trying to scrape out a few bucks. He's Terry Funk. Yeah, without the name, you know what I mean. <laughs> oh. So we quickly go back to Shivani and Ventura to wrap up, and they go off the air. What a weird pay-per-view. Like, just kind so of a, a company without a lot of direction at this point. Who A company, I think, with an identity crisis. Like, who? what is WCW at this point? Like, I'm not really clear. Like, Ventura and Shivani are so casual as they're announcing this show. That it's like it's almost like they're not haven't been given any direction of what to do or where to lead it or what the show's supposed to be. At the end, they're just like, "Well, that was a show, guys. How about that?" 
Like, there's just nothing. There's no driving force to the show at all. Uh, and just such a lack of like emotion during this insane main event. It's like they're just kind of calling it, whatever, no big deal. Yeah. Like there's there's nothing. Like there's no emotion in any part of the show really at all. Like this was the main event that really needed to be called by Jim Ross. Like Jr. would have put this main event. Out. Oh God, can you imagine? He would have lost his shit for this. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, how would you rate this? I just, it was good wrestling on this show, but like booking was pretty awful. The finishes were pretty much uniformly terrible. I very much disliked this show. Yeah. Like Southern style wrestling in WCW in the early 90s and late 80s is not my cup of tea to begin with we've covered that before like this i probably never would have gone back and watched these shows if not for this podcast and for steve's constantly suggesting that we go back to this era um so like the good shows are like such wonderful finds like oh my god that's so cool i I had no idea but the bad shows are just they just match my confirmation bias it's just like well that's about as shitty as i always assumed these shows were just boring and terrible and badly booked and miserably lit and there's only 200 people there and it sucks yeah this show looked terrible like they've like upgraded on cam side there's like five people they've upgraded the production a little bit from when watts was there but now like there's still barely any light in. This still looks like it's shot in somebody's basement. Yeah, it just doesn't even look like... If you go and you look at WWE at the same period where they've really started to bring the lights up and they've really started to invest in production, it's night and fucking day. Yeah, and that's one of the many good moves Bischoff makes is he invests in production. He wants to make this show look like something that people would actually want to watch. Yeah. Ooh, so that's a wrap for Halloween Havoc 1993. Not the greatest show, but, you know, a lot of interesting and weird things going on, and this was kind of a period of WCW we haven't covered much of. Um, Next week, I think we're going to have a lot of interesting things to talk about as we cover uh, Halloween Havoc 1995, a show from the dawn of the Monday Night Wars, but most infamously, the show where Hulk Hogan kills the giant. Let's be clear. This is the only show in wrestling history where two wrestlers have a monster truck fight on the top of an arena parking garage. Yes, that is a thing that happened. Yep. And the giant gets thrown off the roof and then comes back and wrestles an hour later. <laughs> Talk about fucking Mick Foley coming back and wrestling another Hell in a Cell after jumping off. The big, the giant falls off a roof. Yeah, he sells it. He's fine. No problems. No problems. Ooh, all that and much more next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again.